Well, hey, we're, gonna, um, we're actually doing things a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to share right now. We're going to do the talk at the front end uh, of the service, so calm down, everybody. I know that will throw us for a major loop today, but we will be okay. Um, and then we're going to leave some time and some space towards the end of, uh, of the service. So uh, last week I had the joy and privilege of going to my high school reunion. Has anybody been to a high school reunion here? Yeah. It's, um, it was potentially one of the most awkward things of my whole life. Um, and I'm actually still trying to find some sort of a really great sermon illustration out of it. I don't have one yet, but at some point, just kind of be prepared, I may bring in a high school reunion illustration. But, um, well, hey, I'm going to start this morning by actually giving us um, an, an admonition a little bit. I had breakfast with a good friend of mine a couple weeks ago, and he had communicated to me that when he first got here roughly nine months, a year ago, we, um, from the stage, whether it was myself, could have been Russ, maybe Ryan, we don't know who, or he couldn't remember who it was, but he said that um, we spoke really passionately and um, we encouraged people to go and pursue small groups. And we haven't done that for a little while. We talk about small groups a lot, but we haven't, um, we haven't really pushed people that way. So here it goes this morning. If you are interested in wanting, uh, and wanting to know about new community, if you want to be a part of this place, then you have to be a part of a small group. It's the only way that you will truly catch the essence of what we do. It's the only way that you can truly be a real part of new community is by being involved in one of our small groups. And that's not because they're the greatest small groups in the world. It's simply because we believe that's how church is done. And so that's really where we push everybody. That's where we want everybody to connect at a deep level is in those small group relationships. And so we're challenging you. We're pushing you towards that. We don't have a ton of other things that we offer. We don't have a bunch of programs. And that's, that's strategic on our part. We really want people to go and be in those smaller communities in and around the city uh, uh, during the week. So um, please hear that, and, and that's, um, that's the cry of our heart. That's really what we believe that we can do well and what we want to do well. So if you're interested in that, find me after the service. Talk to Russ in the back. Find a small group leader. Just begin to ask questions of the people around you. It may feel weird at first, but just say, hey, tell me about small groups. Are you in one, or do you know somebody that's in one? And we will help you get plugged in to a small group. So let me pray, and then uh, we're going to jump into Nehemiah 12. Lord, be with us today. Lord, we pray that you uh, would speak to our hearts, open our eyes to see the scriptures in a new way. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to learn, help us to um, not just hear the word, but also to do the word as well. So, God, we are incredibly thankful to once again come here, to be here, to worship you, and we pray that, um, that you would continue to move in and through this place. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, great. You can uh, open your Bibles to Nehemiah 12. I'm not going to read the whole deal because the first um, 20-ish verses are really long and complicated sounding names that I don't, I'm not confident that I could actually read out loud. So I'm going to give you kind of a brief overview of what this chapter looks like. Verses 1 through 26 
is um, an explanation of the priestly and Levitical families that begin to return to Jerusalem once the wall has been finished. So that's the first chunk of this chapter. Verses 27 through 30 explains the need for the Jews to now dedicate this wall, this newly finished wall. Verses 31 through 44 are procedures for that dedication service. It, it essentially explains what did that service really look like, what happened in that moment, um, what is dedication, so on and so forth. And then verses 45 through 47 is um, kind of procedural talkings of what, what are some other things that now need to be done once we now have this new life within the walls of Jerusalem. What are some other procedures that need to take place in order to establish some sort of continuity, establish some peace, some order within these walls? So that's kind of a breakdown, of a real broad general overview of this chapter. I'm going to spend um, most of our time, um, actually all of our time, in verses 27 through 30. And we're going to talk about two things within there. We're going to talk about purification, and we're going to talk about dedication, those two words. So let's read this. Uh, let me read this, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Verse 27 of chapter 12 says this, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem, so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba as, at Asmameth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So we're going to start by jumping into this idea of purification, which it speaks to there in verse 30. Purification is this incredibly important thing for the Jewish culture, and it's actually a, a smaller part of the bigger sacrificial system that the Jews operated within. They believe that to truly celebrate, to truly worship, to truly dedicate something, that they needed to be purified before the Lord, that they needed to be cleansed before the Lord. They thought that that was the only way that their hearts could be made right, was to go through this purification service. And so these rituals, these practices of purification began to be established, and they were ritualistic. They would happen on a continuing and ongoing basis. And it looked like anything from uh, washing clothes to the sprinkling of water to sometimes there would be time periods established that somebody was unclean for X amount of days, and once that time period was up, they were pronounced clean once again. Fire was used at different times. In this passage, it doesn't say exactly what the purification ritual was. Most likely, it was some sort of the sprinkling of water, is what most people think. So we would really expect, as we read this, as we know, as we know about Jewish culture and we're reading, the wall has been finished, we would, would expect that some sort of purification ritual would take place. And obviously it does. What's interesting in it, though, is we don't talk about purification much. We don't talk about purification in our context a ton. It's not really something that we generally like to talk about because I think it establishes some feelings of guilt oftentimes or, or some weirdness. And that's maybe because we're not pursuing purity in our lives. We don't feel like we're pursuing uh, things that are pure in our lives and our hearts. But I also think it could be because we don't believe that God has already established us as pure. And that might be a wild concept for people, but purity like the kingdom of God is an already but not fully yet reality. 
In John 15, the scripture talks about us being made clean. We're already cleansed. And yet there is this idea that we need to continue to work towards purity in our lives. Nehemiah, the Jews, believed that they needed to perform a series of purification rites, rituals in order to worship, to celebrate, to dedicate. I don't think that's all that much unlike the way that we create these internal lists in our minds of things that are impure, things that we shouldn't and can't do. We all have those lists. We all know what those things are. Maybe it's not swearing, it's not watching R-rated movies, it's not doing whatever those things are, but we kind of internally or as a community create these lists of, well, those are impure things and so we know that we can't do those. But oftentimes we find ourselves doing those very things and guilt begins to arise. And out of that guilt, we feel weak, we feel um, demoralized and that often drives us back to those very things and so this weird cycle begins to establish itself in our lives, in our realities. Man, these are the very things I don't want to do, and yet I find myself doing them. I feel so terrible, and here I am doing them all over again. And it's this cyclical pattern that begins to be established. And it's incredibly hard to break out of that. It's so hard. But the reality is, is purity is not simply abstaining from sinful things. That's not the whole of purity. And I say this a little bit in tongue-in-cheek, but wouldn't it be wonderful if one of the very reasons that Jesus came was to free us from this cycle? Wouldn't that be incredible if God came, us, came to free us from that cycle? The cycle of doing something, then feeling guilty, and finding ourselves driven right back to doing it again. Now, there will be people that immediately red flags go up and say, well, Kevin, you know, it's not all about that. There, we do have to live pure lives. We can't just pursue sinful things. And, and please hear me, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying go and live this wild freedom and don't worry about the ramifications of sin in our life. Don't worry about these impure things. But don't think that we need to continue to seek out the approval of God. God approves of us. He's already made us clean, and so our goal in, in trying to be pure isn't to seek his approval. It's not to seek right standing before him. That's one of the fundamental differences between us now and the Jews back then. They performed this regular and systematic rituals to present themselves as pure. But through Christ, we have been freed from that. And that's the beauty of his message. That's the beauty of his work. It's the reason we're probably all sitting in this room at some level is we've been freed from that. The slate has been wiped clean, as we say a lot, by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, by his power. And so we no longer have to seek his approval day after day after day. We no longer have to be stuck in that cycle. And so whether we're not pursuing pure things in our lives, or maybe it's just the very reality we don't believe that we are pure in the sight of the Lord, we find ourselves struggling with this. We begin to see this distance grow between us and Jesus. And I've been in this season before where things are great and then you just kind of find yourself slowly that that distance begins to grow. You slowly feel just a little more disconnected from Jesus. Things that became really natural two, three, four months ago, like study, prayer, being in, in healthy fellowship with others, things that came really natural become not so natural. It feels harder to engage in those things. Worship becomes laborious. 
It's hard to engage in worship on a Sunday morning or outside of the Sunday morning context. Distractions begin to come and be a part of your life. Your faith begins to feel like a chore, feel like something, ah, I gotta do this, and, and, and again, in that, that cycle begins to emerge again. Because it's in impurity that we lose touch with Jesus, the very Jesus that came to free us from the bondage of sin. And again, that impurity can be the very things we do, or that impurity can be just the reality that we don't really believe that we are pure. We don't believe that God has paid the price, that Jesus has wiped the slate clean. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's in our purity that we begin to see God. And yet too often we don't believe that Jesus has already made us clean. And so our view of purity gets imbalanced. I've experienced this on a number of different times. I've been, um, been a part of different men's accountability groups where you would have a, a, you know, a small group of guys that would come around and the, the idea of the accountability group is to help keep us accountable. It's why we named it an accountability group or why it's named an accountability group. So it is exactly what it sounds like. And these guys will, will gather around and we'll sit down and we'll begin. We'll, maybe we'll start with a devotion. Somebody will lead that. But soon thereafter, we kind of get into this, well, let's share all of the stuff that we've done this week. Who, who's struggled with sexual purity? And then, you know, the guys kind of slowly raise their hand or whatever. Or who's, who's seen something they shouldn't have seen? Or who's done this? Or, you know, so on and so forth. And you kind of just begin to see these guys begin to get demoralized as they struggle with, oh, man, I... I struggled with sexual purity last week, and here I am again this week, struggling with the same stuff. Or, yeah, I looked at something last week I shouldn't have, and, and I'm just right back here again doing the same thing. And so we, we try to create creative things to, to be in our lives as safeguards. We talk about bouncing eyes, which is this idea that a guy's eyes would just bounce. You would never fo fixate on any one thing because that can get you in trouble. We talk about email filters. We talk about having even a smaller accountability group where there's one guy that you're accountable to so you can't get lost in this big group. And we do all these things. We safeguard ourselves, and yet we still find ourselves struggling with the same stuff. Now, these things aren't bad things. These are great things. Email filters are phenomenal things. Accountability groups, I want you to be in an accountability group. But when we begin to talk more about the very things that we're not supposed to do than we talk about the way that Jesus has changed our lives, that imbalance begins to establish itself. When you make that switch, I think when you begin to view yourself in that different lens and say, no, Jesus has already won. Jesus has won the battle. I am clean. And yes, there's stuff in my life that I need to get rid of. When you begin to make that switch, I think this idea of purity begins to establish itself. We begin to break out of this terrible, terrible cycle. See, purity is not simply about taking control of our own lives. It's not about us grabbing control and trying to do all these things or not do all these things. We need to remember that Jesus has already done the work. And we hold those things together. We need to walk that tension. We need to walk that balance, knowing that it's not all us, that we need to let God be the Redeemer. We need to allow Him to redeem us. Purity can't be simply behavior modification. It needs to be allowing God 
to redeem and to reconcile in our lives. So I think true purity comes in this. First, acknowledging, honestly acknowledging our brokenness, the reality that we're fragile, our own dysfunction. It's, it's acknowledging sin in our life. It's honestly saying, yeah, I'm screwed up. I got some stuff. The scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's a piece of it. But then the other piece is this. It comes in resting in the reality that Jesus' very purpose and plan is the redemption of the whole of our lives. You look at his ministry, the way that he healed the hemorrhaging woman, his interaction with the adulterous woman, when he healed the guy that was lowered down through the roof, the paralytic. All those things, it wasn't simply about healing the person of the physical issue or just the spiritual issue, it was both. God is a God of redemption of our whole lives, and we need to allow him to do that in our worlds, in our reality. So like much of the Christian faith, purity is a finished but ongoing process. It's the reality of accepting the grace, mercy, love of Jesus, accepting ourselves as clean in his sight, but then continuing to pursue those pure things in our life. And I'm convinced that the pursuit of purity is less about our final standing before God and more about a quality of life. It's more about leaning into him, establishing the kingdom here. It's not necessarily a salvation issue if we understand that Jesus has already made us clean. To pursue ongoing purity is a quality of life thing. It's, a, it's how do we live life to the fullest, which Jesus said we could in John 10. He said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has done the final work, but we continually seek to be purified so that we may worship and experience joy and celebrate in fullness. I think we continue to pursue this idea of purification, of purity, so that we can then dedicate our lives to him. And that's the second piece of this scripture that I want to talk about, is this idea of dedication. Dedication, I think, often is a byproduct of purification. So when I say dedication, what do people think of? And this is an actual question, so you can shout stuff out. When I say dedication, what, what do people think of? What? Commitment, okay, great. Babies? Yeah, yeah, we often dedicate babies. That's a great one. The beginning of? Okay, cool, I like that. What else? Books? Discipline? Okay. I, I was even thinking like less theological and more like, well, people dedicate books sometimes, you know? The first thing I thought of um, was songs. You dedicate a song. And I was immediately um, thrown back into my eighth grade year and the crush that I had on Carrie Hansen, which I hope she's not listening to this because this could be awkward if she is. Um, I haven't seen her since eighth grade year. Um, but I, I was a little bit of a late bloomer, and so um, I had never really had a crush on a girl or anything, and so I, I walked into eighth grade, and, and Carrie was this wonderful eighth grade girl at Mead Junior High, and um, I thought the way to win her heart was going to be to dedicate a song to her. I was pretty convinced that this would be 
uh, my in with her. And so, um, and some people will know this song, others won't. Um, but I, so I got on, I called on uh, or called up um, 92.9 ZZU, the zoo back then. And um, I dedicated the song The Diddy by Paperboy, if anybody, <laughs> if anybody knows that song. There's, pro there's probably like a five year period where that song was hot. But um, so I dedicated that. The problem with it is I had no idea if she was listening to the radio or anything. So she, I, she may never even know that I dedicated a song to her. But that was, that's pretty much my sole experience with dedication. Um, but so I think when we hear dedication, we think of a lot of these things. We think of commitment. We think of discipline. Um, we think of the beginning of. But we also think about books, songs, different um, dedication services for babies. But dedication was this incredibly important thing for the Jewish culture. We see it. Um, we, we see it throughout Old Testament. David dedicates the, the victories in his battles to the Lord. He says, this battle, I, you know, I've been victorious and I dedicate it to you. We see that in 2 Samuel. Solomon has this long and, and really um, eloquent dedication prayer over the temple, 2 Chronicles. The, the last, um, the, kind of the last words of Jesus in John, that, that long prayer that he goes into, that could even kind of be seen as somewhat of a dedication prayer as he's dedicating his disciples, the people that come to know him through the message of the disciples. Almost seems like it might be a little bit of a dedication prayer as well. So we see this, this trend, this, um, this strand of dedication throughout the Old Testament as a really important thing, again, similar to purification. For the Jews, it was giving, the, giving God the credit for what he had done, for the way that he had stepped in, interceded, the way that he had helped in their worlds. It was often a time of joyous worship, of celebration. And I think it was a recommitting of themselves. Somebody said commitment um, up here. It was, again, an idea of we recommit to you one more time. The Jews had this on-again, off-again relationship with God where they would stray, but then they would come back to the Lord, and then they would find themselves away, and they would come back, and they would continue in these dedication times to come back and say, we recommit before you, God. So in this, in our text here this morning, chapter 12, verses 31 through, um, I think, around 44, really, Nehemiah... Um, it's kind of the explanation of what they did for this dedication service. And I'm not going to read it, but I'll kind of paint this picture for you. Nehemiah stands here and he sees that the walls are finished. And this is an incredible undertaking, an incredible feat that they had accomplished. And so he gathers together um, all these different people. That's why some of these priests and Levites are coming back in the city. He gathers these people together and uh, musicians and singers and um, all these incredibly talented folks. And he breaks them into two different choirs and he sets them up on top of the walls and he has them begin to move and march and sing and praise and give thanksgiving through music, through worship around the outside of the walls. Very reminiscent of him in the very beginning of the book, walking around and inspecting the outsides of the walls. And so it's this joyous celebration, these two beautiful choirs singing and praising the Lord for what he had done, marching around the walls, and they come together on the back end, and it's this, it's this beautiful, beautiful celebration. And it may look like it is simply a celebration, that all they were truly doing is celebrating, but it is a dedication. And the difference there is that celebration is a past tense thing. We celebrate something that has happened. But in dedication, we celebrate what has happened and we commit to something in the future. We don't simply celebrate something in the past tense. We say, hey, we, we dedicate our lives to you. We commit our lives to you. We acknowledge that you've helped us, and we want to reorient ourselves towards you 
God, for what you have done. So let's draw out this metaphor a little bit, this idea of walls. Because I think we could all say that we are building walls in our lives. We're all working towards something or many different things. The walls that the Jews built was a, a wall. I mean, it was a wall around the city of Jerusalem. And none of us are doing that, but we are erecting and building these walls in our lives. So think about that. What, I mean, oftentimes we go to church things. We say, well, I'm a part of this ministry or I've started this ministry, so that's a wall that I'm building. Or maybe at a previous church you were on a building campaign and, and you actually built a new church, and oftentimes we say, well, that's a wall that we're building for the church. But think about it maybe a little bit differently, and, and I'll kind of throw out a couple here. We're building a wall by planting two churches right now. That's a wall that we're building. We're saying we're, we are about this. God, we acknowledge what you've done in our world, and we're planting these two churches, one in the south, one in the north, and, and this is a wall for you. For me, a wall that I've been recently building over the last two years is being a father. It's a new role for me. We have 19-month-old kids, and so, um, so for me, that's a new wall that I'm beginning piece by piece to build and saying, this is, God, this is for you. So think about it in your world. What are the walls that you're building? What are you doing with your family, with your job, with your friends, with your, hob with your hobbies that are essentially building walls for God? Because I'm convinced that everything we do, every wall that we're currently building, can and should be dedicated to the Lord. It might be easier to think about this idea of dedication if we use the word tether. It's a cool word that I've been um, spending a little bit of time looking at. And, and tether is it's attaching something or someone to something or something else. So it's not a real complex definition. But a, a second piece of that definition is you, in tethering something, you restrict something from moving too far away. I think of this as um, if you go to the fair or you go to Disneyland or you go to some place where there's a ton of people, that you have kids wear those harness backpack things. Has anybody seen those? Has anybody been in one of those before? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a way to tether. You tether your child to yourself. Your kid's running all over the place, but they have only so far a distance that they can go. How many people have played tetherball before? Yeah, that's essentially what tethering is. You attach that ball to that foundation of that pole. So it's this way to restrict. It's attaching something to someone else, but also a way to restrict. And tethering in this context, in the spiritual context, is attaching the name, the love, the grace the mercy, the power of God to the things that people see us doing in our lives. It's attaching God to the walls that we're building, the very walls that he oftentimes has called us to build. In tethering, two things happen. We acknowledge all that God has done, and we reorient our lives completely on him. It's what the Jews did in that dedication service. They acknowledged all that he had done, and then they reoriented. They said, God, we commit to you. We are about you. And that's what tethering does in our lives. So what are we tethered to? Sometimes it's not God. Sometimes we tether these things that we do to our own experiences, maybe to our own abilities. 
Maybe you've been given some gifts and you say, well, I'm accomplishing this in my life simply because I am phenomenal at this. Maybe it's your own competencies, your own abilities, whatever that is, but oftentimes that's what we tether things to. We don't tether them to the very reality that God has redeemed us, to his love, to his grace, to his mercy. I think ongoing dedication, I think tethering this idea should be a regular rhythm of our lives. We should be continually looking at the ways that we can tether God to the walls that we're building, to the things that we're pursuing. And I'm not talking about simply dedicating babies or having somebody come and pray over your new business, pray a a prayer of dedication. Those, again, are beautiful things. But I'm talking beyond that. I'm talking bigger than that. How are we attaching all of ourselves, or how are we tethering all of ourselves to what God has done? I'm talking about praising God in the midst of a really crappy situation, in the midst of an incredibly hard situation where you still praise God and say, God, I praise you for being in my life. Even though I am going through this right now, I praise you, I acknowledge that you are working. And then in that, it's releasing control from trying to keep that situation at bay. Saying, God, I give you the control. I tether you to this thing in my life. Or maybe it's thanking God for the dead-end job that you're in, the job that you hate, or the boss that you don't get along with, where you say, God, I thank you for giving me this job. I praise you for allowing me to work. But it doesn't stop there. It then needs to move to, and I will work excellently at this because you are my redeemer, and I will work as if working for you. That's how we tether in all areas of our life. We acknowledge, and then we reorient. I think it's coming to a place when we acknowledge what God has done, and then continually reorienting our lives. So a way that it points back to him. I'm going to read a section of scripture. I'm actually going to ask you to close your Bibles and then just close your eyes. And I'm going to read from John 15. And I want you to listen to this scripture through the lens of tethering. This is what it says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think worship is one of these ways where we can begin to wrestle with these ideas, not only of purification, but of tethering as well. It allows us the space to acknowledge God, allows us the space then to reorient our lives on him, to tether our lives back to him. So this morning, we want to create some space for that. That's why I talked early in the service, so that we would have kind of this last end here just to worship. So you may, need, you may feel like you need to spend time wrestling with God with this idea of purification. And I would challenge you, maybe it's not simply thinking of all the ways that you're impure, all the ways that you're sinful. Maybe it's simply thinking of, God, you have made me clean by the word you have spoken to me. 
and I praise you for that. I think that's actually harder to do than it is to think of the things we've done wrong. So I would challenge you in that. Maybe it's this idea of tethering. Maybe there are areas in your life, walls in your life, things that you're doing that you could do a better job of tethering to, a better job of acknowledging God in the midst of it, and then reorienting your life back towards him. Or it could be simply you just need some space to worship. You need some space to be quiet, some space to sit and let the grace and love and mercy of God wash over you. And we want to allow you that time this morning. So we've got communion up here in these two corners. Stand up, go to the table, take of the bread, take of the wine when you feel led. There's no rush. We're going to be here for the next little while. And let's focus on this idea of purity, of God already establishing us clean, and now us moving in that ongoing process, and this idea of tethering, that we acknowledge what God has done and we reorient our lives back towards him. Let me pray.